new financial advisors, you don't need to take a sales job in a program. I want to beat this drum as hard as it can be beat. And so I have John Luskin here. Hello, John. Hello. Talking about some guidance for new financial advisors who want a meaningful career that is not a product pushing salesperson job working for a wirehouse insurance company or under any type of quota that puts pressure on sales over service. So first, before we get into it, and I love John's path. I think he's a great example for some of you new financial advisors, and I'm so excited to speak today on the show about this with John. But before I get into it, I just want to kind of tell my story and then I will, for the most part, shut up. But I feel that it's meaningful because I feel like a lot of people get sucked in to this kind of a path that I went on. So I was interested in getting into like advising. And at the point that I was, that this experience happened to me, I actually had a year old baby and I was pregnant with another one. So for those of you that are long-term viewers, you know the story, but for new, new viewers or listeners, I had four children in five years with Antonio. I had my first kid when I was like, I think 36. And then they always tell you like, the doctors are so clinical. They tell you like, you know, it's going to be hard, really hard, really hard for you to have kids. And I knew I want to have a lot of kids. So I was like, well, I can't waste any time. So there we go. Like, boom, boom, boom. And boom. Did I get four? Anyways. Yeah. So I'm pregnant with my second kid. And I'm like, I don't know why, but for some reason, I thought it would be a great time to like kind of get into the profession. I don't know. I just was because what happens is like when you go and you talk to these recruiters, they really are like drug dealers. Like they really don't give an F. These these insurance and wirehouse recruiters, they don't give an F. They are pushing so hard just to get you signed up because it doesn't matter. They win either way. If you come, they put you into the training program. If you fail out, they still get whatever prospects you pulled in and sold their stuff to for the three months or however long they were able to keep you on. And if you succeed, well, then you're successfully just pushing their products and you fit into the whole scale model that they've very intelligently figured out. And, and it's at a minimal cost to them, although they'll always say like how expensive everything is, but you know, they'll only have to pay you like two or three grand or in some cases, no money at all. So what happened with me was I had a little bit of, I had always been really hesitant about taking this step. Because I had always like I'm a CFA and I worked on Wall Street and I had some experience. And so I was always trying to like they were always trying to recruit me like the banks and the wirehouses and like everyone was always trying to recruit me for this stuff. And I was always like, no, no, like I know what this is. But I think I didn't really know what it was because I came across one, I'll just say like drug dealing recruiter who was really adept at it. And she was like, you know, we're really into work life balance here. We want to get what she freaking nailed me with the women line, right? Women don't fall for this. If someone does like, I know I fell for it. I'm not saying everyone that pushes this line is full of it, but she certainly was get down from that. Sorry. I have a cat too. We rescue cats. Get down from there. That's not to eat. She's eating. He's eating my plant. You're going to get sick and we're going to have to go to the vets. See, it's just like a kid anyways. So this drug dealing recruiter is like, you're a woman. We want to get women. And it's great that you're pregnant. We want to accommodate you. And, and I was like, but one of my kids is in daycare. 
and she's going to be in daycare for a few more years and I'm about to have another baby. And she was like, well, you're only going to make $2,000 for the initial training process. And then after these three months, if you make it, like she's making me sound like I won like the Stanley cup or something. She's like, if you make it and you know, you, you're, you like pass the, the goals and you can continue on with us. Then we just customize the salary to whatever you'll be needing at that point. And I was like, Oh, <laughs> you're so much better than all the other programs. I was crazy to doubt you. And I just, I got so drugged out. And I, I signed up for the program. And then once I got in there, I was like generating leads like crazy, not to like be in my own like self testimonial to how great I am. But like, I, I was like calling up everybody, like just how they tell you to do. I was doing it. I was like calling up people, college friends, the whole thing. And I, and, and I just kind of ran out of gas because to be honest with you, the financial pressure of having, and I had the baby while I was at the program. And then after I had my son, this was my son, my second child, about three months after that, I just left because I was under so much pressure. The pressure was going to OD from the pressure of that. I had two children under two years old, daycare expenses. And I was, I couldn't sleep at night. I had, I got, there was one night I was up the whole night and I had a migraine and I was like, I feel like I'm being crushed under the pressure, literally crushed, just crushed physically, starting to physically affect me. And I quit. And they had such a problem with it. They even, the drug dealers even tried to not let me go at that point because they're like, no, like we have, we would have fired you if you didn't see they're so good. Like these insurance salespeople are so good. They're like, we would have fired you if we didn't think you had the potential. We see something in you. You have to stay on with us. And I was like, like the CEO, like the president of the whole program met with me. And I was like, no, no. And I even blew them off. Like they were still persisting and I blew them off. That was the only way I knew I had to get out. So what I'm saying is like, this was a terrible experience. I definitely got sold, so to speak. And uh, that is perhaps why I'm so passionate about having people like John come on and tell their story because it's a testament to how you, if you're smarter than me, can, if you're open to hearing other people's stories that you can make a better decision than I, can, I did because I was so stupid, the decision I made now, I don't know. I mean, I'm now like a pretty well-known writer and, and influencer and doing great things. And so I think it probably worked out for me too. You know, but I mean, I could have been a good financial advisor if I had had the right setting environment and support resources and had been in the right position, had the right path set out for me, which I never was smart about creating. But John was, and I give him such major credit. Tell me your story, John. So like, just talk. I'm going to shut up now. Just talk. Sure. Yeah. So before I got into the space, I did a little bit of research. I looked at how you can work as a financial advisor, and I knew that there was a sales route. And I knew that's not what I wanted to do. So initially, I worked at a AUM shop. So it was fee only, no sales. I was the para planner. So I was part admin, part financial planning nerd. And then I did that at a few other firms over, over the years, moving eventually to lead advisor, doing investment management for the firm that I was at. But I was never in a sales role. I was always the financial planner or the investment manager or doing a good deal to help a firm design their admin processes to get their workflows and their financial planning processes going within the CRM that they were using. That's always been what I did before I eventually went the own 
route of launching an advice-only financial planning firm, where now I just work with folks directly. I don't do any asset management, and I specialize in one-time engagement. So if someone wants to work with me only one time, that's great. If they want to follow up once a year, that's fine too. I'm here to help folks for as much or as little as they need, targeting those do-it-yourself investors. Why did you decide to break out on your own? That's a great question. So I was at the AUM shop that I was at in San Diego, Boutique RIA. And for the most part, it was pretty great. I was enjoying what I was doing. I had a lot of autonomy. It was a small firm. The firm owner, he was doing his marketing thing. So he just let me run the firm's financial planning and investment management processes. And then at that point, we had an admin. So I didn't really have to do that role anymore. So it was pretty great. And then the wife and I decided to do a gap year. So we did a little sabbatical. We turned a little van into an RV and we traveled around the US and Mexico for several months until COVID came and that stopped that short. So with the decision to do that, I told the firm, I was like, hey, listen, I'm having a great time here, but I've got to go do this thing before I get too old to not be able to do it. And so I was working for that firm remotely for a little bit, helping them with what I could working remotely. Eventually they had someone come in to do what I was doing in person. So they didn't really need my services anymore. So at that point I was mid sabbatical and just enjoying, enjoying my time. And eventually sabbatical ended. I'm like, all right, I should probably find something to do next. I looked at a couple of firms and there was one firm that was pretty fantastic here in San Diego, flat fee shop. The firm owners pretty big on life planning, which is pretty neat, which I don't really know a ton about. So that was an interesting learning opportunity. And it was really flattering because he really wanted me and he designed this whole role around me. And I was on the cusp of accepting that. And then my investing hero reached out to me and he said, hey, you should launch your own advice only shop. I'll show you how to do it. And when that happens, you don't say no to that. And so I launched. the. Hold on a second. Who is the advice only hero? Rick Ferry. But how does Rick Ferry just reach out to you randomly? Oh, so I've been friends with Rick for years. I did my master's thesis on endowment management. And the jumping off point for that project was a blog post that article, or a blog post article that Rick did on Forbes, the, the curse of the endowment model. And so I took that article and I ran with it and expanded upon it in my thesis, looking at case studies of, hey, what happens? when large institutions invest in alternatives? And the answer is, you probably should have stuck with index funds. So I've always been a huge low-cost investing proponent ever since doing that study, understanding that, hey, even if you're investing in super exotic instruments, it doesn't matter. You're going to be better off with that low-cost index fund portfolio instead, even on a risk-adjusted basis. That's specifically what I looked at in my case study. In the case studies that I looked at, my thesis, Rick, looking at the nominal, the overall performance numbers. So did that study reach out to Rick shortly thereafterwards, right? This was years ago. And then we've just been in touch um, uh, ever since. So you start out kind of working for other people. And I, okay, so I want to start, I want to dissect this a little bit, John. 
because it's so important to me that I encourage new advisors to avoid the traps. So one of the traps that people get into, here you are, you're a new advisor, you either have experience or maybe you don't, let's say you have no experience. Like when you had no experience, it sounds like you made a decision that really set you up well for what you are now, which is service oriented, not as sales oriented. And it sounds like you've always been this way because you had a very good starting off point, John. So how did you get that job of, how did you get a job that will compensate you for doing financial planning analysis without having to go out there and knock on doors and be fodder in a cannon and just be under a quota be a sales machine. Like how did you, how did you get that initial job that was so I, not sales? Yep. Yeah. So I spent a lot of time at the local financial planning association meetups and events, introducing myself, interviewing other advisors. Here's a tip. If you want to get a job, don't necessarily go out and ask for one. But go meet with a bunch of advisors and say, hey, I'm a new planner. I'm looking to get started in the field. What should I do? That's been a way I've gotten a lot of the gigs that, or jobs rather, that I've had in the past. So you have that conversation with that senior advisor. You learn about them. You learn about their life track. And then perhaps a few months or even a few years later, they'll reach out to you and they'll say, hey, we're, we're hiring. So that is how I got, as mentioned, a handful of jobs that I've had in the space and the position, the first position that I had that paraplanner role. I don't think I did that first informational planner. Yep. Did you have the objective of being a paraplanner when you sought your first job? I had the objective of not doing sales. So if that means, Hey, I've got to do some at right. If I've got to do some account opening paperwork as well, as some financial planning and investment management, that's fine. I would, I would do that. So that's how I got my foot uh, in the door into the space effectively in that mixed role, part admin, part financial planner, part investment management. You see, it's, it's, it's a knowledge gap, I feel. Because the sales programs in this industry are so good at marketing themselves that they overshadow. Like if you went and you typed in like new financial advisor, jobs for new financial advisors, it would come up the Edward Jones program, the Merrill, the insurance, like all that. Oh, yeah. Okay. See, it's like Google. No offense to Google, right? They, there are certain laws of Google that Google must follow uh, in terms of providing search results when someone calls up a term. And that is, that is the science of the internet, right? But the internet is very much biased in this way towards the larger commercial organizations with the million dollar marketing budgets. This is what I say all the time to people is go find that maybe hole in the wall financial planning firm around the corner with two employees, the advisor and the support person, like the receptionist or the, you know, admin assistant, whatever you want to call it. And then just, I, I say like, just go to them and, and just offer them support because a lot of these companies would hire, a lot of these companies need the operational support, but then it's, 
it's it's grunt work, definitely. And you won't be a financial advisor trainee per se, but there is something to be said for being a part of the operation, learning the ropes, and then figuring out if you really even want to be a financial advisor. So what are the roles, though, that are the, an option for somebody that's starting out that does not want a financial advisor sales job? It would be like you had para planner. See, there's not enough information about para planner roles. It's always junior financial advisor, which is another way of saying sales rodent. So para planner, like what else? What are some other roles that were options to you at that point? For me, that was all seriously considering some sort of, again, junior financial planning role. Again, I, I'd done enough research about this space ahead of time before moving into financial planning to know I just didn't want to do sales. I didn't want to do one of those big jobs, Edward Jones, as he mentioned. One, it's not what I want to do. Uh, two, I would be terrible at it. And then three, I wouldn't feel great about putting people into these terrible high cost uh, products. Now I can say I, having spent some time at some AUM only shops, I can say I don't really love the way they did investment management, complexity for job security, not particularly an evidence-based approach. So when I work with folks now, I get to tell them, hey, we're just going to keep it really simple. We're going to use low cost funds. We don't need a lot of them. We're going to stay the course or rebalance every now and again. Maybe if you want to get fancy, you can do tax house harvesting. Maybe you can do tax efficient fund placing, but it's really not necessary. So when it comes to investing, keeping it simple really is critical to success. All that other stuff just guarantees high fees and probably some taxes, but not necessarily better results. So I get to say that to folks now because it's my own shop and I get to do whatever I want. And I think that's the right way to do it. Certainly the research shows that is certainly what's going to give investors their best bet. So just go back even further. When you were in college. Mm-hmm. How did you know to take that first step and reach out to the Financial Planning Association? Because this is, I hear from people all the time that have no knowledge of the FPA. I think it is probably because a lot of these industry organizations are more preoccupied with getting as much money out of the existing members by making them take CE credits that they charge are now charging a lot of money for and getting the fees out of them rather than advertising to or making themselves visible to the newer, younger generations. And the conferences are a big thing too with these industry organizations. You can tell I'm not a fan, but how did you even know about the FPA? That is a fascinating question. It's been a little, it's been a, probably a decade plus. So I'd, I'd have to think carefully. I've came across the FPA specifically. Gosh, perhaps it was looking at UCLA's CFP program and perhaps there's an FPA affiliation there. So I checked it out um, for that reason. But again, I spent a lot of time looking at this industry before I moved into it, in, into financial planning before, before actually taking the plunge. So I uh, read a bunch of Kitsis posts. Kitsis has a great post, uh, 10, 10 tips for career uh, progression. And I think I saw another post recently that he put out about advice for career changers going into uh, financial planning. So again, I just did a lot of research on the industry. So again, I knew I didn't want to do that sales route. And then how I came across the FPA, I honestly cannot remember. But having come across it, I went to as many events as I possibly could, uh, got involved uh, pretty pretty early on. I was programming committee for local FPA, um, San Diego. 
uh, VP for Next Gen uh, San Diego, which is a group for younger financial planning. So that was absolutely a phenomenal resource. So if you're a younger financial planner, definitely encourage you to check out if there's a Next Gen chapter in your area, because then you get to network and shoot the breeze with folks who are in a similar spot as yourself. Again, if you're that younger demo going to conventional FPA events, there's going to be a lot of gray hairs. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But if you're someone younger starting out, certainly there's a lot of value in connecting with your peers, folks of your own generation. So check out a next gen FBA chapter if there is one in your area. San Diego's got a great group. I mean, this is just so different from how I went through this. And I think it's maybe true for a lot of people in my generation. I mean, I feel like I'm 100 years old when I say something like that. I mean, what am I even like? I'm in my mid forties right now, right? Do you know, I don't even know how old I am half the time. One, there was one year when my mother was visiting, they live in Boston, they were visiting. And I'm like, it was a few years ago. And I'm like, oh, I'm feel so I'm getting, I'm barely getting up there. I'm turning 43 in two months. And my mother's like, Sarah, you're turning 42. <laughs> it could just show you like, first of all, how much I even care. And then second of all, how, how like, scrambled you get when you have four children under whatever years old that was at that point but how funny good thing my mom said that because i'd be sitting here thinking i'm older than i am oh my goodness anyway so but i think it is generational is my point because when i was in college i mean i went to i'd hate to say it but i went to harvard which to be honest with you i'm a little bit ashamed of because it was such a bad decision I had an awful negative experience there and there was nothing like this. It was nothing like this. You know, I was good at math. I was, I was good at English. Right. But there was, it was like, you could major in economics, which was like, here's the law for curve. Right. Like it was all Keynesian. It was all like the theories and stuff, which is the equivalent of like practicing medicine using leeches. Okay. It's, there's no, it was not practical at all. And I was always like, like I would, I was like going late to economics class and like failing. I think I even failed an economics exam at one point. And I mean, and later on in life, I actually became a finance professor, an adjunct finance professor for, and because I just wanted to support younger people that were in the position of being interested in this, but then feeling excluded. I felt very excluded from the whole profession because I wasn't that economics star that got A's on all the exams and loved the stuff because I was so bored by it that could get recruited into those were the people that got recruited into the investment management roles because see at that point it was all investment management so what happened was I remember American Express I got an interview for American Express and the person was like I remember she was I remember so I'm looking at her in the interview in my mind and she's a middle-aged woman and she had like a bunch of kids and she's like talking about her career and stuff. And she's like, and the way she was talking about it, I was, it was so like, I didn't want to be an entrepreneur. I was not ready to be yet an entrepreneur when I was in college. So I think, you know, there's there, but there's that, there was that cliff, right? Where it's like, either you go jump off the cliff and be an entrepreneur or you get recruited into investment management sales job, investment management job, which is not a sales job. And you make a six figure salary and you help select stocks for, it was at that point, it was mutual funds. 
say, because it was in, when did I graduate from college? In the year 2000. In, in, in that, at that point, it was like, go work for Fidelity and be an analyst. So like for the mutual fund team, but there was nothing, there was no planning. There was not, no, no knowledge of this. It sounds like though you were a lot smarter than me. So, okay. So just for the people who are listening to this, they're either career changers or looking to get in as a new advisor. I think the key thing that I keep hearing from you, John, is do your research, right? Because that's what you did. Yeah. I mean, that's certainly part of it. But again, going back to, hey, I did my research. I knew I didn't want to do sales. I found a fee-only AUM shop. I was like, great, this is it. And it's even funny because during the interview with them, I said, hey, I did my master's thesis and I figured out investment or index funds are the way to go. And their response is, yeah, that's what we do. And then I started working for them and, and ended up managing client portfolios. And I, th- I think maybe they had a couple index funds, but they had active funds. They're moving in and out of asset classes, all this silly stuff. So uh, yes, you can do your research, but uh, still prepare to be disappointed. Certainly nothing is guaranteed. And then the second uh, shop I moved to, Again, more disappointment. I went over there on the condition of I'm going to manage a subset of the client portfolios and they're going to be index fund portfolios. And then I got there. That didn't happen. Right. So just be prepared for disappointment no matter what you do. Uh, certainly you, you can research, but that, that's just life. Right. Life's, right? Life's going to throw you curveballs. And then certainly launching your own firm is not without its own challenges. Marketing is a huge thing. I'm still trying to figure out. Compliance is a whole thing in itself, especially if you're doing my model, which is individual plans one-on-one. I don't have a recurring subscription model, which means if I work with enough folks, I've got to register in a state and registering in a state is a whole thing. So you're going to do it yourself and try and figure it out, or you're going to pay a lot for a compliance attorney to do it for you. So certainly there's no silver bullet for anything. Anything's going to have its pros and cons. I think you've got to do your research be prepared for disappointment and then adjust as needed. I think that's just life generally. Okay, so so let me move into now where you are currently, which is you've been in business now a couple of years. I launched on August 1st of last year. So not, not quite a year yet. So around the same time, Cody, Cody Garrett was on one of my podcasts. For all of you that are interested in this topic, please also listen to the Cody Garrett podcast on advice only. Okay, John. So you guys launched around the same time. So you're coming up on your year anniversary. Congratulations. Now. Thank you. But so, so Rick Ferry, Rick Ferry was also on this podcast, everybody on the hourly advice podcast that I did with him. Check that one too. So Rick reaches out to you and is like, come fly away with me. And then, and then you say yes. And then what happens next, John? Which another great point is everybody gets a mentor. I was so thick in the head. I never had a mentor. Oh, so for, get a mentor. It doesn't have to be like King Rick. Okay, Rick Perry. It doesn't be like as good as Rick, but just somebody. Okay, <laughs> okay, go. So what happens next with Rick? Yeah. So he, again, I was about to accept this gig. I'd already made the decision. And again, it was a great opportunity, flat fee. I was going to be their firm nerd, if you will, the 
firm owner who wanted to hire me had seen the research that I've done and we had kept in touch for a few years. Again, this is another one of the advisors I initially did an informational interview with. And then a few years later, they offer you a job. So I was ready to accept it. And then again, Rick reached out and he says, hey, you should launch your own firm. I'll show you how to do it. And that was early last year. And so I officially launched on August 1st, as mentioned, and it's been an absolute blast. Certainly, uh, it's been uh, challenging, but it's really been enjoyable. And it's also been really rewarding with respect to, hey, if there's a problem with the firm, then uh, it's fully on me to fix whatever the issue is. So if you're a little peon in a firm, that's not necessarily always the case. There's going to be a problem and you're going to go to hire up and say, hey, we got to fix this. And they may or may not be amendable to fixing that, but with your own firm, you're responsible for everything. So it's certainly a, a fascinating challenge and I've certainly been enjoying it. One thing you mentioned, Sarah, is getting a mentor. So the Financial Planning Association has a program called Mentor Match. So they'll match you up with a mentor depending upon what you're looking for and what the mentor is looking for. So FPA Mentor Match, go ahead and check that out, folks. I also kind of pair people up within my group. I have a LinkedIn oh, cool. group. It has about 200 people in it, and it's focused on advice only, flat, and hourly planning. Oh, great. So one, one of the things I do is if someone comes in, uh, I, I did a post about this a while ago, and I said, look, people need mentors. If you want a mentor, then do it. And a bunch of people stepped up. So definitely join my group on LinkedIn. If you can't find it, it's called Advice Rockers. If you can't find it, then message me, send me a DM, and I'll get you into it. So, John, you set out in August 2021. Where do your first clients come from? So I've got all this data in my CRM, and most of my clients come from other advice-only advisors who have a different service model. So a lot of the time that's going to be a recurring subscription model. So if you're advice-only, again, you're not managing assets, you're just giving advice. But sometimes you can give that advice routinely and regularly and do customary check-ins. So a lot of advice-only advisors have that subscription model, that retainer model. I don't necessarily have that. So if those advisors who have that mandatory retainer model get a lead and they have someone who doesn't want to pay that retainer fee ongoing, then that other advice only advisor may someone send someone my way. And then the other big way that I get folks is from AUM shops. AUM shops, again, they're going to get leads and some of these leads only want planning. They don't want investment management. So they'll send me folks as well, or gosh, even an AUM shop will have a minimum, right? So maybe that person does want uh, investment management ongoing, but they don't have that $1 million portfolio. So again, I'll get those leads sent my way. And when that's the case, I can discuss with that person, hey, investing really is simple. You can do it yourself. Here's how. But if you don't want to, here are some low cost ways you can get professional management. Keeping costs low, that's going to help improve your odds of success when investing. So those are the big ways that I get folks, other AUM shops who, again, don't want to do advice only, or they don't have that, or rather those leads don't have enough money for the AUM shop. They don't have that million dollar portfolio, or alternatively, those other advice only planners who, for whatever reason, it's not a fit for them. 
you're I've gotten yeah uh, a handful of folks uh, from Twitter, uh, a handful of folks from uh, other uh, posts on social media, um, maybe one or two from the Bogleheads Live podcast. Um, what is your involvement with the Bogleheads Live podcast? So uh, the Bogleheads Live is a nonprofit organization. So everyone in the Bogleheads community is a volunteer. So I volunteer to put together Bogleheads Live, which is an online live Q&A. So we'll have a different guest each week. And then the Bogleheads communities or any other do-it-yourself investors can come on and they can ask their questions to the week's guest. And then I record that episode, edit it down, and turn it into a podcast. So folks who can't attend a live event can still enjoy uh, the content. You're doing something different than most financial advisors and fulfilling a need that they cannot fulfill within their own practices. So that therefore makes you a a referent that makes you a, I don't want to say vendor, but it makes you kind of a, a, a center of influence to other financial advisors. But most people, if they don't, let's say someone doesn't want to pursue the model that you're pursuing though. If someone says, I don't want to be a one-time analysis type person, I want to actually do the financial planning ongoing work. I want to be an ongoing financial planner or I want to be an ongoing financial planner and investment and manage investments. I want to do the whole enchilada on an ongoing basis. I don't want to have to hustle for a new client every week or whatever. Like Rick says he has a new, I mean, Rick has the podcast. He's the host of the Bogleheads podcast. So Rick told me on when he was talking to me on my show, he said that he has one client every single day, a new client every single day. So for someone that doesn't have that though, like doesn't have the resource that doesn't have the relationship fit that you have where you fit with other advisors and get a lot of referrals from them. But like Rick, Rick has, I think it was like over a million downloads of his podcast by now, right? Yeah. What advice would you give to somebody who is in that situation where they don't have that marketing engine? Yeah, yeah. So same thing, I didn't necessarily fall out of the womb and I had all these advisors sending me folks, I reached out to them. So when I launched my firm, I reached out. So all the folks that are sending me leads, these are, they're not doing just because they woke up one morning and decided to, I reached out to them. I said, Hey, I'm launching my own firm. Here's what I'm doing. Do you have any words of wisdom for me? And sometimes that ended up with them thinking, Oh, if I don't have a fit, I can send it to John. So I did a lot of that and I still try and do that routinely. So that's going to be me reaching out to AUM shops. That's going to be me reaching out to other advice only financial planning advisors, just networking with them, telling them what I'm up to. Maybe they'll give me a piece of wisdom. Maybe it'll be an awkward exchange, right? Which is also just a fine outcome. And then maybe they'll send me folks uh, in the future if they're not a fit for their firm. So that's certainly anyone can do launching their own firm, reach out to other advisors. Hey, I'm launching my own firm. What should I be doing? What have you learned? That's a common question I ask, you know, what did you wish you know, you knew when you launched your own firm? So again, maybe I'll get a word of wisdom. Maybe it'll be an awkward exchange, which again, it's totally okay. We're just throwing darts. That's just the nature of life. Sometimes it'll work out. Sometimes it won't. 
But if you do enough of that, some of these folks will eventually uh, send uh, folks away who aren't a fit for what they're doing at their firms. Notice that John did not say, I reached out to other financial advisors explaining that I offer a complimentary service that could help them serve their clients better and help them grow their practice using utilizing my resources as leverage that you just were looking to sincerely build a relationship. Oh, yeah. yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. No, I really want to get words of wisdom. Hey, I'm a total newbie. I know nothing about running a financial planning firm. What, what should I know? And it's the same thing for those folks who are trying to get that pair of planner role, right? You don't go to those gray hairs and be like, and I don't mean gray hair in a, a disrespecting or condescending way. It just, I know. Just, I, like, I mean, if you look right here, I am getting some, but I'm excited about getting gray hair because see, I've always had dark hair and I've never been able to dye it like a rad color, like pink or purple or even like blue. And now that I have these, like you can see them on the video, if anyone's watching, I have these white hairs now. So when I dye it, I'll have blue streaks or hot pink streaks in my hair. And I'm really excited about that. So it's a kind of like cloud with a hot pink or neon blue lining, so to speak. Oh yeah. That's what you want for sure. For sure. For sure. So anyways. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I mean, I think, she, I think anybody, this is like what I say all the time, but then I still like, I heard from somebody today that was like arguing with me and over <laughs> on LinkedIn about like how this approach is not, but like, I just think you're not going to get any anywhere doing a hard pitch to anybody, a financial advisor or prospect or anything. It's like, people don't still understand this. People just don't understand that be, like he's, John was humble, everybody. You hear the man's words. He was humble. He was seeking knowledge and wisdom Okay. He was like a stoic philosopher. <laughs> All right. He was like a, an ancient Greek here. Use the ancient Greek method of sticking to principle, not, not trying to go out and hawk something. All right. And it, I have a book about this. Okay. It's on my website, my LinkedIn 47 messages book folks. All right. So yeah, you avoided triggering that triggering people. And then that opened the doors for you. And like John said, the other thing is people can be so kind of impatient about this. Not that I haven't brought it on, but I've had the worst. I've seen the worst. I've had like the door slammed in my face. I've just been like ground down by so many people. And it, I mean, definitely, I think I have a kind of out there personality. So maybe that's just a reflection. Like that response is a reflection back of my kind of like craziness. But even if, if I weren't this way, at times when I haven't been so nuts, the, I, you, you just have to be rejected. You have to be rejected. Like, I don't think anybody, if you don't want to be rejected, go hide in corporate America somewhere. But I, like, I'm sick of these financial advisors that just have this like action avoidance because of, it's always about the negative consequences that could happen. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I've got an advice only study group. And in the chat, one of the advisors mentioned, hey, I had this conversation with this prospect and it went so and so and they haven't, you know, came on. And my response was, yeah, that's just that's normal, right? Those are the numbers. You're gonna have one exchange. It's not gonna go perfectly. You just just keep throwing darts. It's effectively it's, it's a numbers game. 
I agree with that. John. And so for every any new financial advisor, we're now just kind of getting into like the, the ebb and flow of marketing. And especially when you're starting out, no, I mean, people are going to kind of know that like when they see you on LinkedIn and they see that you've been in business for three months, they're going to naturally assume he or she doesn't have many clients. But you know what? That's OK. Just stop. Don't hide it. If you need money and you don't have enough clients, I say moonlight, do freelancing mm-hmm. on the side, get a gig oh, yeah. or whatever you need to do, do it so that you're not in that position of desperation or letting anybody make you feel bad or and intentionally or unintentionally or letting any, any failure of marketing make you feel bad. If that's what you need to do to make yourself non-desperate and non-grasping and non-reaching places you shouldn't be reaching, then you do that. And there's, and every, I don't care if every freaking thought leader in the whole world goes against what I say, but I'm not into it that people need to feel like they need to serve people in a way that accommodates them, their financial need. And look, I mean, I'm an entrepreneur as well. And I wish someone had kind of said this to me that like, do whatever you need to do to not try to bend things, just be straight with it. Like you're going to go out there and market. You're going to get rejected by some, some you're not going to, but you you should never deviate from your purpose and your intention. And if that means that you have to have some kind of secondary financial support that has nothing to do with what you do, then, then freaking do it. And I don't care if anyone wants to come on here and bash me or bash me on social media for saying it. F you if you are, because I'm sticking to that. I'm sick of people feeling like they can't pursue more noble, a more. This is noble what he's doing. This is admirable and noble, everybody. Like I'm sick of people kind of copping out of that for the purposes of kids. It's so natural that we feel because we have kids, you have a mortgage, et cetera. Yeah, certainly. I'll, I'll echo that either side hustle or the approach that I did was I just had a big runway. So our household were naturally frugal. So if I tried this business venture and it completely failed, we would have been okay. Eventually I could have found a gig anyway. In the meantime, we certainly had enough uh, sufficient cash reserves and, and other income uh, to get us by while I, I played around. Absolutely. But also, I think what I just want to emphasize here, too, is that when people say it's a numbers game in sales, I feel like it is to some extent. But so, yes, you do have to have the volume. You have to knock on doors to find the right people. You have to be active. Absolutely. There's a number of reasons that people make, they, they make excuses about why they can't do that. I don't disagree with I, I don't agree with those excuses. But what I also don't agree with is the idea that high volume and low personalization is, is going to get you where you want to go. Because I see a lot of just like shooting without aiming. And I see a lot of like thoughtlessness in, in prospecting messages, especially direct messaging over LinkedIn. I see a lot of thoughtless posting on social media. I see a lot of lack of intentionality about this person that I'm talking to on, on LinkedIn did I research their, their background? Did I look at their posting history to see what they're actually talking about? If, if, I, if you go on LinkedIn and you see someone posting, you see, you're after a CPA, right? You, you want to get this CPA to do business with you. And you go on LinkedIn and you see that this CPA is posting about 
oh, here's my take on direct indexing. Podcast I did with so-and-so financial advisor. The person sending business to that financial advisor. This, chances are you're not going to be their number one choice. So think about what you could offer to that person that's not going to try to going to compete with that relationship they already have with the financial advisor, but nobody does that. And then people are like, oh, I sent out 30 LinkedIn messages today and I got rejected. Well, you deserve to be rejected, dude. Come on, bro. Like you sent out 30 messages. You didn't even look to see is the, first of all, is the person still in the role that their bio says? Because a lot of times people have a title that's like outdated. They got laid off three years ago. They're not even in that role anymore. You're trying to talk to people who work at Amgen. They're working at Pfizer. All right. Because you didn't take the time to scroll and look at what their job history is. Or they don't live in the same place that they used to live. Even though it says at the top, if they're, they have like Seattle, Washington. And then you look down and you see that they work in Miami, right? They, they work, they work at like craft food in Atlanta, right? And because you didn't scroll down and you didn't take the time or that you see that they're posting about stuff. Like they post about travel. They love travel. Well, what does that say about somebody who loves travel? Maybe like they like culture. Maybe they're from a bicultural family. Maybe they posted about that. What, what are, what are, what do they value about traveling? What do they value about culture? What is their, what are their interests? You would be so much better off. You know, I mean, I, I talk about this in my book, but you are so much more relevant to somebody if you could talk about something that they are truly interested in, rather than what you're truly interested in, which is what is their financial condition at that any one point. And that's what people hate about advisors, financial advisors, prospecting them on LinkedIn, and that's what John kind of did was he reached out and he talked about something that was relevant to them, which was advancement in knowledge. Yeah, certainly for those other advisors, absolutely. For insofar as stuff on social, for me, I don't necessarily use LinkedIn. I take the same approach as, as Rick Ferry and as Cody Garrett. I just do my best to provide value. So putting out blog posts, putting out the podcast, certainly I can't work with every single person in the world, but I certainly can do my best to try and tell every single person in the world about the importance and value of low cost investing, how simple it is and how a lot of folks really can do it themselves. So now advice only or uh, people who work on a project basis, like you, like Cody, um, you know, the two of you have been very successful for reasons that you describe in the podcast that I've done with both of you. Maybe there are others, but I don't know. Sounds like it's pretty viable the way that you've set up your businesses and gotten clients from what you just described, creating content that is generous, that is I don't want to use the word objective because that's a loaded term, but that's more looking to educate and removed from the idea of if I tell it this way, they're going to feel like they need it. Right. But just what, what, what does people really need? They need sound advice that really is in their interest. Right. Okay. But I don't think everybody is up for the hecticness of 
having a business that is not on a recurring revenue stream. Oh yeah, for sure. So what can you say about that? Is it something you ever think about like changing? Oh gosh. Yeah. All all the time. So before I even answer that, I'll say no matter what you're doing, whether it's launching a financial planning firm or your workout regimen or your diet or whatever, you have to find a process that you're going to enjoy. So that's critical because if you don't enjoy the process, you're not going to do it. If you only have the end in mind, it's just not going to work. Um, so insofar as just going back to the marketing, so I, I love writing, so I'm happy to write a blog post. It's been a fascinating opportunity to interview the various guests I've had on the Bogleheads live podcast. So, or rather Twitter space, which I then turned into a podcast. If I wasn't doing that to generate business, I'd be doing it anyway, because it's fun and I enjoy it. I honestly wish I had a little bit more time to do writing just because I really like writing. So with the end in mind, figure out what you want to do and then figure out how you can do that. Certainly your point, it's going to be a lot harder if you're specializing in one time financial plans relative to an ongoing model. It's not easy. I'm constantly thinking about marketing what I can do next right now. I'm still trying to figure out a way to turn these live Q and A's on Twitter into a podcast in a manner that makes the podcast sounds good, but also doesn't take up a lot of time or money. And I honestly don't think that's possible. I've got to uh, pick one of those. Either I'm going to have to put out something that's imperfect or I'm going to spend a lot of time or a lot of money on it. I'm still figuring that part out. With respect to, hey, I've got to find a bunch of clients on a regular basis. Absolutely. If that stresses you out, then maybe that isn't the right model for you. If you like waking up in the morning and knowing that you're going to have so many folks paying your monthly retainer model, then maybe that's the way that you want to do it. One thing that I really like about being an advice-only planner and perhaps even the supplies to you specializing in these one-time plans is that the folks that I work with are going to be a little more financially literate or not a little more, but a lot more financially literate than especially the folks that I've worked with, the clients at AUM shops in the past. And for me, that's more enjoyable. I enjoy working with folks that know their financial planning content a little bit better and lets me be a little bit more of a nerd with the folks that I, I work with. But certainly I get a mix of clients too. And sometimes all folks who aren't super nerds. And then I get the challenge of explaining what's an otherwise complicated topic more simply. And that can be a fun exercise in itself. But to go back to your question, you've got to find what's right for you. If you're really stressed out about the one-time model, then maybe that's the not the right fit. And then I'll also add, uh, also add that part of me is a little bit of a reluctant entrepreneur. I've always thought about it, but I've always been terrified about the marketing part. And I likely would not have done it if not my investing hero had not encouraged me uh, to do so. And again, when I had that opportunity, I just thought about, hey, uh, I'll try this. What's the worst that could happen? If this falls on its face, maybe I'll go back and I will take that, that job offer being the investment nerd and the financial planning nerd at a flat fee firm. That certainly wouldn't be uh, the worst case scenario. I'll say it this way. 
there's a reason that advisors hate working with engineers. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And, and it's because they don't like people who are smart and educated that will challenge them. And so the fact that engineers are the nemesis of almost every single advisor that I've talked to with many, with, with some a few exceptions, I would say you, I think Rick works with some engineers. There's some other people too. I think that the skeptical questioning clients are often not welcome from advisors because there's just so many holes in the model, the fees, the complexity, the smoke in the mirrors, and an engineer who can do the math is going to blow that out of the water. It's going to absolutely either make your life miserable or they won't even be the client in the first place. Yeah. So certainly, again, because the folks that I get are rather financially literate, to your point, they can do the math. They don't want to pay either that 1% ongoing or even that subscription model ongoing. They just want to pay that flat fee once. So certainly my model is more geared towards those folks who are a little more financially savvy. One thing I want to add to an earlier point with respect to, hey, doing the ongoing advice only or the one-time advice only. Another reason, or rather a reason that I like the one-time advice only is I don't have to come up with a calendar, right? I don't have to come up with a calendar of, all right, it's Q1, we're going to review your estate planning. It's Q2, we're going to review your tax planning. That's not really something that I want to do. It's not really something that I think I would get enjoyment out of doing. I want folks to come to me for financial planning help as they feel that it's appropriate for them. It's the pressure to constantly create value or sometimes there isn't even there, right? Sometimes a lot of financial planning is up front. We do a whole bunch of financial planning at once. And then some years go by and we have a big life change and we do financial planning again. So for me, at least I felt like doing the ongoing financial planning model wasn't what I wanted to do. But again, for other folks, maybe that's right for them. To touch on your engineer comment, certainly, yeah, there is that stereotype. Absolutely. I wouldn't say it's engineers so much as because I certainly filter for folks that I work with as well. I'll have these 15 minute intro calls, figure out their investing approach, figure out if they understand index fund investing or at least are interested in doing it and then figure out what, what they want to accomplish. And if they tell me something like, hey, I've got to spend down my money in 20 years because I need my Monte Carlo analysis to tell me this percent, I let them know, hey, if you absolutely have to you know, have that level of certainty, no, I'm not the right person for you. A lot of financial planning is going to make a whole bunch of assumptions, future tax rates, life expectancy, future investment returns, future spending. So if you need a definitive answer, I'm going to tell them I'm not the right person. You should probably look elsewhere because a lot of this is unknowable. So we're just talking about ranges and we need to understand that financial planning is going to be changing over time. It's going to be something you need to reevaluate regularly. So uh, when it comes to those sorts of folks, I tell them, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to be uh, the right person for you. To the fourth decimal place. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right, John, I'm going to wrap here. Was there anything I didn't ask you about that you want me to ask about? Gosh. Um, yeah, I, I think about 
again, I'm, I'm the reluctant entrepreneur would not have necessarily taken this step unless I was encouraged by my investing hero uh, to do so. So here I am, and it's, it's worked out pretty well um, so far, but it's certainly, it's, it's not easy. Work-life balance is certainly a challenge. I don't stop necessarily thinking about the firm, probably work more than I should be for now. Maybe I'll figure that out a few more years um, into this venture. It's, it's not for everyone. It's going to have its pros and cons, but certainly you could try it and fall on your face and then go back to a shop. If you want to think about who's looking to hire folks, if a firm sees, hey, this guy had his own firm once, they're going to know that you understand what it's like to be a business owner. So that can be pretty valuable. So in terms of getting hired for that next gig. So I don't necessarily feel like there's a huge opportunity cost for going out on your own worst case scenario if you're thinking about it. But again, it's it's probably not going to be uh, easy. And having that runway, that financial rent runway, having your finance set up ahead of time or having that side hustle, that can help manage uh, that risk. Right. Yeah, I mean, I wish, I, I, I mean, I'm always so stultified when I talk to people that want to start on the profession and or they want to do a job transfer, right? That they have a job and I'm, and I'm like, okay, so did you, you want to be a financial advisor, but did you financially plan out what the next month, the next year, the next three years need to look like? And, and they're like, no, I haven't done that. Like, give me a break, bro. You know what I mean? <laughs> Come on. All right. So financial advisors, what I take from this podcast and listening to John speak about his experiences is that one, I think he was at a huge advantage because he did a lot of research and knew the landscape before he started. So he, he knew for the most part what he was kind of getting into. Second of all, he took a very humble approach and reached out networking in a modest fashion in which he was pursuing knowledge and advancement rather than gimme. And third of all, he had a mentor that I think did a good job. I think it was, I don't know if that it was intentional to get a mentor. It sounds like it was unintentionally got a mentor, but I would just advise anybody intentionally get somebody. Make sure it's a good person that is practicing the type of, uh, the, in, in the way that you would want to practice. It is really, it can sometimes be a generational thing too, when you have a lot of the more senior advisors that are mentoring and they came up and made it cold calling to sell annuities. And you're sitting here, you wanna sell index funds. Is that really the best mentor for you? Not saying it's not, but think about, does this person really have an in-depth knowledge of how to make the moves I need to make at this point in my career based upon them doing it? Because if they haven't, I don't know, that's the best mentor for you. All right, everybody. So thank you for listening. And please rate, subscribe, and review this show.